church, uh, again, you're most welcome. Um, I've got a word today which I thought would be an interesting series to start. So it's a series of three messages. So this is the first. And we're posing the thought of being a good Christian. And my daughter, you know, had, I had this conversation with Maya Marie. She's at the back there. Hello, darling. Uh, so my daughter is six. And we had this conversation of being a good Christian. So she goes to St. Michael's School, um, just around the corner. A great school, love it. And um, so we had this conversation about being a Christian and what that means and what is it to be a good Christian. So this is kind of inspired through that. So I've broken it into three sections, into three, uh, into three messages. The first is prayer. So we're going to be looking at being a good Christian and the first component, the first element of that being prayer. If you have your Bibles, why don't we turn? We're going to be reading from the book of John 14. So it's the book of John, chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at verses 12 through to 14. So that's verses 12 through to 14. So I want to, I want to elaborate on this thought because we think that men and women are great Christians sometimes in the Christian world and as we are now a grown person. We think sometimes that a, a man of God and a woman of God is a great Christian because of his or her public achievements. So we look at a person, we might be looking at uh, you know, some tele-evangelist on TV and we hear of his private jet and we hear that he's preaching in Africa and we hear that he you know, preached to a thousand people. And in our heart and in our mind, we think, wow, that is, a, that is clearly a good Christian, no? Well, I would suggest instead of looking at the outward manifestation, I would put it to you that it's probably a good thing to have a look at the prayer life. Because all of these things, the wonderful things that we saw in town yesterday, people getting saved, is because of prayer. The people that got saved yesterday in the concert is because of prayer. My healed back is because the church prayed. The anointing that we have as ministers is because of prayer. The breakthrough that we seek for ourselves financially for our family is because of prayer. The fruitfulness in our lives is because of prayer. Our wisdom, our understanding is because of prayer. Our spiritual strength and all of these things, church, is because of prayer. Prayer is an intimate connection and communion with God, the creator of heaven and earth. We did a Bible study several weeks back and we looked at what prayer was, right? Prayer is nothing more than you using your words and speaking to the creator of heaven and earth. That is it. An intimate communication with God. Prayer. You know, Max um, Lucado, who's a great Bible scholar, 
said that our prayer may be awkward, and sometimes it is. Our attempts may be feeble. Sometimes I don't have strength to pray, right? Your mind is so clustered. What do I say? What version of the Bible do I speak Old English? But since the power of the prayer is in the one that hears it and not the one that says it, our prayers makes the difference. That's powerful, right? Because our prayer and the power therein, thereof, is in the power of he that hears it and not that says it, we have a confidence that our prayers makes a difference. Martin Luther, one of the great church fathers, says that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to live without breathing. <laughs> if you're a Christian, and if you're going to do anything in the spirit, it is, it is, more, it is more feasible for a fish to be out of water than a Christian to be without prayer. You have to pray in order to get these things done. So the question that I want to pose, that I want to frame our minds with as we start, is how can you be a great Christian? How can we be inquiring of Christianity? How can we be developing as a Christian? How can we be a great Christian if we don't have a great prayer life? Because in our text that we're about to read, we have Jesus, and he declares the role of prayer in being a great Christian. So if you have your Bibles, why don't we turn? So we're reading from John 14, verse 12 to 14, and it says, Truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. So that my, uh, so I will do it so that uh, uh, the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Let us pray as we start. Father, we just honor you. We thank you. And we pray, we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Lord, that you would help us to understand the power of prayer and the relationship that is formed between yourself and us. As we pray and as we communicate, Lord, help us understand today the importance, Lord, of feeding and this, this relationship, Lord. Help us to understand the importance of us if we're seeking God, if we're, if we're a new believer or if we've been saved 50 years. Speak to us again, my Lord, about the importance of speaking with you regularly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Church, every Christian is called to do great things for the kingdom. Every Christian, it's not just the, 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 the pastor of the church, it's not just the disciples that feels that they've got... Oh, every Christian that professes to have a faith of some degree in the God of heaven and earth, in Jesus the Lord, the Messiah, is called to do something for the kingdom. But the thing is that you won't be great because you have great intellect. I'm very intellectual, and um, I went to seminary, you know, which is Bible college. I've got many degrees, I've got great ability, I've got talent, I've got strength, 
I will not be great before God because of all of these things. It is never about what I have inside of me. But I will be great if I have a great prayer life. I will be great and you will be great before God if you have a great prayer life. So the context of our text is to call to greater things. The context of which we're speaking about, as we can see in verse 12, is calling the believers to doing greater things. Jesus says that believers will do greater things than he has done. That's what he says in verse 12. But that word greater, as we look into that, comes from the Greek, and it's a Greek word, uh, and it means, and it's, uh, it's, the Greek word is, uh, is mezona. <laughs> and what it means when it says greater, you would do greater things. It means larger in size. It means greater in amount. It's the widest sense of the word. It is objective, it is plural, but also it is comparative. So I compare it to this. Jesus is saying, the miracles I have done, you will do them in greater number. So he's comparing the miracles that I have done versus the miracles that you have done. And that's where he uses the word greater. So Jesus came, we know that he went around for 30 years and he healed the sick. He had authority within himself and he said, you walk, you don't have strength in your legs. He said, you have sight because you can't see. You have hearing because you can't hear. He broke the shackles. He liberated the bondage that the enemy had set upon his people. You will do larger works by scale is what he's saying. All of the things that you have heard and all of the things that you have seen, because I'm going to my Father, I give to you the ability to do greater and bigger things. So what we have here is an indication to the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the power in his death. It is the power in his resurrection. Power in Christ is then passed over to each and every Christian, as he came and died, he said the work is finished upon the cross. And as he ascended unto heaven, he gave the great commission. And he said, the same thing that I do, I give you authority. And I give you dominion. I give you the ability to do exactly the same thing. So there was a transference of power. In Ephesians 1, 18 and 20, it says, with, eyes, sorry, with the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you will know the hope of his calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance amongst the saints, and the unlimited greatness of his power for us who believe, according to the workings of his mighty strength, which he puts to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and is seated at the right hand in heavenly realms. He says that you will know the greatness and the unlimited potential that is within you, that is within every single believer, 
that expresses a faith in Christ. He says that here that you would know the outworking of his mighty strength. Are you saved today? Because if you're not saved, like we spoke about these, these gentlemen on the street, as we spoke about the ladies in concert yesterday, if you, know, if, if you don't have that confidence to know that your sins are forgiven before this almighty God that we speak about, I want to pray with you afterwards. But if you are saved today, it is the power that was in Christ that is now in you. If you are saved and if you are sanctified by the Spirit, if you are a believer, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you. That is the mystery that the angels in the ancient world seek sought to understand Christ in us. They couldn't understand. But I say to you today that the same power that is in the Lord, our Savior, has been imputed into the hearts and spirit of every believer that we won't just be church attenders but we would be bold. We would have a spirit. We would have an understanding of who we are in Christ and who he is. We would have an understanding of our position within the spiritual realm. We would have an understanding that our words matter, that our prayers matter, that not only does God hear, but things move by what we speak. It is the blood that empowers you to greater things. The blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross of Calvary. It was the blood that empowered. It is the blood that shed, that forgave us. He's called us to greater things. Before I was saved, the greatest thing was to get into the, the club in town. He's called us to greater things. Before I was saved, the greatest thing was to get into the bar. He's, got, he's called us to greater things, to do greater things, to elevate our minds and our spiritual pursuit to greater things than the sexual immorality that we are plagued with. He's raising our life higher than just making money, than just pursuing wealth and clothes and cars and working the nine to five. He's raising us. He's lifting us up higher. And that is to be what it means to be sad in Christ. In heavenly places we've been raised out of the miry clay and the bottom feeder mentality we're swimming around here in the miry clay and filth of life but God through the shedding of his blood has raised us up in heavenly places so now he's given us a heavenly perspective I can see above my situations in life Oh, I know I'm still short of money for my bill this week. But he's given us a heavenly perspective because this too shall pass. I know sometimes I'm still tired and I, I still have this or I still have... But he's risen us above the mediocrity, the everyday. And he's given us a heavenly perspective and a heavenly vision. He's called us to greater things, church. So the concern of our text is achieving those greater things, right? But what we must see is that greatness, if we seek to have greatness in whatever realm that we seek it in, you want to be successful in your work, my brother, my sister? 
You want to have more and provide for your family? That's a good thing and that's a good pursuit. But your greatness will be rooted in prayer. Your greatness will be rooted in how you are connected with the Father. I can't claim, you know, love to love my wife. I can't come in and say, honey, I want dinner. She'll be like, really? You haven't said good morning to me. You haven't kissed me on the cheek. You haven't said anything. There needs to be a relationship. I can't make demands on a complete stranger. She's not a stranger, but I'm just You can't make demands on a complete stranger. You have to have a relationship. And the same is true to our spiritual father. There must be a relationship. Our greatness and all that we desire to do in life, in the spiritual, is connected, is rooted in prayer. Honest communication. So Jesus says that I will give you what you need. That's what he said in verse 13 and 14. He says, I will give you what you need when you pray. He says, ask, amen? He says, ask. That word ask is to, is to supplicate, is to request, is to petition, is to pray for. It's the idea of, 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 of you know, number 10 Downing Street or, or the House of Commons. You know, we stand for this and we write a petition and we send it to the man. There's a thousand, you know, names and, and, and addresses and we demand more for what we're, we're petitioning. We're, we're going and we're banging on the door and we, we want this. That's what God is saying here. He says, come and ask. Come and bang. Come and petition me. Come, let your, let your, let your, your desire be known to me. Pray. Pray. So the flow of our text is that Jesus did great works. The disciples would do the same works, but on a larger scale. Jesus will give everything that we need for his works, for his glory, for his kingdom, according to his will, according to his purposes, for the redemption of his people. When we pray, there is nothing that is impossible to us, church. I come to inspire and to encourage you. There is nothing that is beyond nor impossible for the God of all creation, the God that spoke existence into being, the God that made these bones and this flesh, this mind and this tongue, there is nothing that is beyond. The Bible says his arm is not too short to act and to work on our behalf. So greatness in Christ is rooted in the prayers of his people. It is rooted in the, in, in the prayers of his people. So the reason we must see this truth, church, is that prayer is often the first thing that we neglect. <laughs> it is the first thing that we neglect. But if you miss this, you will never be spiritually great. If you miss what God is trying to speak this afternoon, prayer is one of the first things that we sacrifice, man. We're running late in the morning. We've got Maya hasn't put on her shoes. Where's your book bag, darling? And Perez, Perez. <laughs> you know, and we're running to St. Michael's school. And have you prayed this morning? I haven't had time. It's, I, 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 I've, I've had to, uh, you know, my wife is there and she's, you know, anchored to my little three-month-old. And so, so uh, you know, shower the babies. Ah, oh, quick. We don't have time, right? We've 
Have you eaten? Yes. You brushed your teeth? Yes. Have you washed your face? <laughs> yes. So we're so busy ticking off these things. Prayer comes about down there. Have we prayed this morning? Oftentimes, church, it's the first thing that we sacrifice. You know, we come to church, praise God. You know, we rush in, you know, after just finishing a, mm, a piece of chicken, we need a bit of energy for church, and we, we rush in, yay, just in time to, to hear our wonderful praise and worship, you know, singing, um, praise God. If anybody else can sing, join us. Um, but again, just in time for service, but we've, we've neglected to pray. We, we, we neglected to set aside half an hour, 15 minutes to come into church in good timing. Let us find a corner and, and let us pray for church, for the service, for the anointing, for ourselves, for our family, for our children. Let us give a time dedicated to prayer. Let it not just be, oh, we've just finished. And, oh, yeah, by the way, God, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I pray for him. Uh, yeah, he, he needs it. And, you know, my wife as well, uh, pray for her. And, uh, okay, okay, amen, amen. That's not a relationship. If I had that relationship with my wife, it would be a relationship. That's just, uh, I don't know what that is. <laughs> it's passing ships in the night. That is not what love is built upon. So we, we, you know, we, we, <laughs> we have to pray at the altar. The most sacred time, one of the most sacred times is the altar call. So at the end of service is an opportunity for those that don't know Christ. Oh, come. I want to pray with you. As I've said earlier on, I want to lay hands on you. I want to ask you if you want to repent of sin. But as we're doing the altar call and we're praying, sometimes, oh, uh, is it finished now, darling? All right, well, let's, let's get up and get out. We miss our blessing. We get up at the altar. But this is where God wants you to be. It is a response to the word. It is a response to what we've heard. It is you doing God's business, transactioning and praying. God's blessing that you would receive. The breakthrough that comes from God through that relationship it is the clearing of that funnel, the communication. It is at this time that we receive the healing. God's responding to us. But also, you know, is the lack of prayer would, would hinder your greatness. You know, we lack our dominion over the enemy, over, over Satan. It is a very real foe. And sometimes we're walking around and we're like, ugh. I don't know how long, Pastor, I could keep just like, we lack dominion. We lack strength and dynamis, that spirit that comes from prayer. In Mark, pardon me, in Mark 9, 28 and 26, this is speaking about the disciples and their failure to, to cast out uh, the demon. This is in the boy that had the mute and deaf spirit. So in Mark 9, 28 and 29, it says, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately or privately, you might say in your Bible, why could we not cast out this, this spirit? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Amen. Some things has to be prayed out, church. Amen. Some things in your house that is not right Women, we don't nag. <laughs> Men, we don't harass and bully. Oh, my goodness. Not... Some things need to be prayed out. Amen. 
It's not right, but we need to we need to pray it out. God, that you would move upon her, Lord. I need my rice and chicken. I, <laughs> Lord, you need to help us. You need to be in the midst of this marriage. What is going on? But there's certain things in our minds and in our hearts. There's certain desires. It needs to be prayed out. There's certain thoughts. It needs to be prayed out. There's habits that we have. It needs to be prayed out. There's situations that we're in and we're facing. It needs to be prayed out to come before God and say, Father, God in heaven. And, and, and hey, you know what? Sometimes God understands our excitement. My wife understands my excitement. When it's like, honey, calm down. I'm right next to you. But God doesn't say that. He loves that. He says, if you come to him with that spirit of like, that is, that, is, that is when you know, he knows that you care. My family's falling apart, Lord, and uh, yeah, I guess perhaps maybe should be doing something right now. Do you care? Do you care? God wants you to have like, God, this is not right and I will not stand. I will fight for my marriage. I will fight as a man for my children to be safe. I will fight for the job and the situation. That I'm in. I will not lay down. God, you need to move. You have said, and we open up the Bible and we appropriate his promises because this is what God has said. Amen. He says, I am not the man that I should lie. So we believe him. But also we have a, a, a lack of dominion over ourselves. Matthew 6, uh, 26 and 41 says, Watch and pray that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but your flesh is weak. This that you see here isn't the true Pastor Mervyn. Here it says that I have an inner man and it is the real me. I have a spirit, and this that you see outside is just a husk. It is called the flesh that covers the spirit. So the spirit inside of me is willing. It wants to communicate to God. It wants to be better. It wants to break these desires, these thoughts, these temptations, all of these things. It wants to do that, but the flesh is weak. The flesh wants to sleep. The flesh wants to go back to bed, hit the snooze button and say, oh yeah, I'll pray tomorrow. Amen. So we need, we lack dominion over ourselves. So we've got to pray over the flesh. We've got to pray over the flesh that the spirit inside of us would rise up. That that burning desire to what carnality yearns for is quenched. And it is by prayer we take dominion and it is by prayer. It is, a, it is, a, it is a, a continual thing. You don't just pray at the beginning of the week and be like, yep, ah, I'm good for the week. <laughs> I'm good for the week. It is a continual thing. Think it is a, a relationship. If you had one conversation with your wife, it wouldn't be a relationship. Your acquaintances, I don't know you. I know of you, Charlene is my wife's name. I know of you, but I don't know you. I know of you, Jesus, because of some kind of un religious... Un 
I don't know of you, but the more that we pray, we understand his love, man. We understand his grace. But also there is a lack of guidance and wisdom and understanding. We don't pray in Joshua 9, 13 and 15. And this is speaking about uh, Joshua making peace with the Gideonites. So these are the people that God said, do not make a treaty with them. I want you to take and come into your land of milk and honey. I want you to get rid of all of these guys. And sometimes we're, you know, we're speaking to non-believers and they're like, but your God doesn't sound very nice. I mean, these people were living there before. How can they just come in and... But what we need to understand is that there was involved in all kinds of horrible things. Like really, really horrible things. Idolatry and, you know, devil worship and children's sacrifice and just horrible things. As you read, you're like, okay, God, I now see why you had to clean my wife is forever, we've got this whole thing, we don't use bleach in our house no more, so we're using vinegar, but apparently it sanitizes. All th That's what God needs to do. In order for us to put food out on the table, it needs to be sanitized. That's what God was doing here. So here we have in Joshua 9, 13 and 15. God said to Joshua, you need to clean the land, you need to sanitize the land, because it's filthy. There's all kinds of horrible stuff going on which is displeasing to me. If you're to build a house, then you have to clear this land. <clears throat> Joshua didn't do that. So here we have it in verse 13 as we pick it up. It says, these wineskins, <clears throat> so this is, the, this is the, um, the, the Gideonites. So they know the God of Israel because they've heard that this great God creator of heaven and earth is coming and, 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 and he's for his people man so his people are coming to inhabit the land so these guys they're smart they said okay we're going to be killed right now let us pretend as if we're not from this land we're from like a land far away right because God has told them to clear this land let us pretend we're from a land far away so what they did is they disheveled themselves made themselves all scruffy they brought new jackets, but they kind of tore it a little bit to make it look old. And they had wineskins where they used to keep water and stuff. And they rubbed it and rubbed it and make it look old. So as these guys are coming in now, this is the story that we pick up. So it says, these wineskins which we, which we filled uh, were new. And behold, now they're torn. They're pretending. They're lying. And these uh, clothes and our sandals are worn out because of the very long journey. So the men took some provisions, uh, but did not consult the Lord, did not ask of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a treaty with them uh, to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Church, <coughs> what bad decisions are you about to make today? What bad decisions are you about to step headlong into? You're bringing your family along for the ride. You're bringing your future, your destiny along. What bad decisions are you about to make? Or have you made in the past? Simply because you did not consult God. <laughs> you didn't pray. You didn't ask for the wisdom. You didn't ask for understanding. You didn't ask us to... Let me have some guidance because God is faithful to speak. We started off by saying that man thinks 
Sometimes we think of a man or a woman as a great Christian because of the outward achievements. You know, I see this guy, man, he's like, whoa, he's powerful, man, he's this and he's that. When we really should be about his prayer life. Because all of these things, all of these outwardly things, is a manifestation of his prayer life. As we wrap up, as we close, the truth in our text, church, that will change your spiritual walk. It will touch your life and those around you. It will, it will, it will provide a, a spiritual development. The truth in our text that will help you today is that prayer is vital. It is an absolute lifeblood. It's not a chore. It's not an inconvenience. It's not optional. <laughs> you need to pray, guys. It is the root of greatness in every Christian. It is the root of greatness that you will be in Christ. So the place that we must come to is to get that power that we need in our daily life. Without prayer, man, I am depleted, I am weak. I'm double-minded, I am confused. What we need to do is we need to get that power that we need to be great. So what we need to do is we need to have a great prayer life. How do we do that as we wrap up? Twofold. We need to get God involved. And we need to get the great results. So the two realms that we want to examine as we close is firstly on the spiritual step, the spiritual realm of getting, getting God involved. And we can see that in the 13th verse of our text. God said, ask in Jesus' name. Ask in Jesus' name. This is Jesus speaking. It's as if Christ is saying, it's not going to be you that's going to be asking, but it's going to be me. Amen. Back in the day, you know, uh, this is, I was, I was, I'm a 70s child. I was born in 73. I used to be given a note by my mum to go to the shop. <laughs> and I would give it to the, to the shopkeeper. It wasn't me that was asking. But my mum would say, I want 10 Bensons, a, bo <laughs> a bottle of Pink Lady, <laughs> and uh, some sugar or something like that. But it wasn't me that was asking. Because the shopkeeper saw the note, he knew that my mum was asking. He knew my mum. I'm a child. He knows me and he sees me. What we're seeing in our text is like Jesus is saying, ask in my name. It won't be you that's going to be asking. It's as if I am asking. So, oh Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, would you... Uh, you know, I ask for my, <laughs> do you get it? I ask on behalf of Jesus that this would be done. Because then God gets involved. As we step into that spiritually now. Now I'm saying, Lord, uh, uh, I, could you move on this circumstance for me? And I'm speaking to the situation. And I'm speaking to my flesh. And I'm speaking to my employment and all of these things. The Bible says that by the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow. There's things in your life that isn't just physical. It's not your boss, guys. 
It's not the lack of finances. The lack of your finance sometimes could be spiritual. So what we do as we speak in Jesus' name, we ask on behalf of my God, principality and spirit, release this thing upon my life. So we ask, but it's not us that's asking. God gets involved, and then he releases his victory. As we sang, right? Victory belongs to Jesus. Victory is his. And we are just like, uh, you know, I'm with him. <laughs> First Thessalonians 5 and 17 says, you know what, prayer, pray without ceasing. Well, we're finishing now. To pray without ceasing. Pray in the morning, man. Pray in the afternoon. Pray, pray in the evening. You don't have to wait uh, for the sun to go down and then uh, find a quiet spot. You can pray. I can pray right now. I, I, you know, you can, you, can, you can pray before service. We can pray on outreach as we did preaching in the, in, the, in the town square yesterday. We can pray in the concert. We can pray at fellowships, man. When I'm driving, my children are like, Dad, we're not in church. Stop praying. You can pray in the car. <laughs> we pray in the bath, man. We do a Sunday, uh, a Saturday, uh, me and some of the guys, we go to the park, get boxing gloves, and we, you know, keep fit, keep fit. You've got to keep fit. We pray before we, we do the boxing. We pray everywhere. You've got to pray. Pray, it's not limited to your bedroom or anything else. All right, so the spiritual step of getting God involved, getting God involved, we ask because it's on behalf of our Lord. God gets involved. The victory is his and is given to us because we're asking in his name. And that can happen anywhere. I nearly crashed the car this morning. I pulled out of the, <laughs> pulled out, I picked up Kizzy and Merrin and we pulled out and instead of pressing forward, it was still in reverse and I pressed the gas and it went zoom in my mind. I was like, oh God, Lord help me. <laughs> we didn't crash. God prevents things in our lives that you are unaware of. And it is through our prayer life, church. It's because we are in communion with God. God's, it's like we have special privilege. But okay, the practical steps as we're wrapping up of, of getting those results, getting great results. It is just, it's just a result. It's just, yeah, getting great results is as a result of our prayer life. So church services, we pray we pray for the church service that there would be an anointing upon the word. That is the practicality. You know, we, we, you know, we pray for, uh, for conversions that the word would cut as we opened up in prayer. For miracles to be uh, shown to the people of faith. For breakthrough. For healing. For the presence of God. But uh, the success in ministry as well. You know, we pray, I mean, in Acts 6 and 4, it spoke about the apostles devoting themselves to the word of God. They gave themselves to the word of God. They gave themselves to pray. That's what it says. They devoted themselves to the word of God and praying. It's, it's not a one-time thing. So the practicality is it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Do I love my wife? Yeah, I do. Do I like her company? Yeah, I do. So I'm going to devote myself to her. I, I've lost my wedding ring, so we are still married, guys. Don't, don't, don't be worried. <laughs> but we are devoted, and it shows when I have my wedding ring on. It shows. <laughs> it shows we are still married. I, it's in the house somewhere. I know, I know. But it is an act of devotion. 
as we give ourselves to each other. This is what God is saying, give yourself to me. More than just, oh, Heavenly Father, blah, 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 amen. Let it be a habit of life. Let it be a heart issue. Let it be an attitude of heart. Because wisdom, the Bible speaks. And the last thing, wisdom. You know, we spoke about that earlier on. But in James 1 and 5, it says that if you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be, your, and it will be given to you. So all of these things, the wisdom, the understanding, the dominion, all of these things, the breakthrough, they are rooted in prayer. Let it, let, let, seek the wisdom that comes from above. You know, as we close, it is Jesus Christ that makes this possible, guys. It is God that gives us uh, this privilege of prayer. It is never a chore. If I had the phone number um, I was going to say Barack Obama, but he's not president anymore. Who's Boris Johnson? If I had the direct mobile phone number to Boris Johnson, I have special privilege. I can phone him up and say, hey, you know what? There's bulbs that need fixing in our church. It happens, man. We have special privilege. That is what we have in prayer. We have a hotline to the seat of the Father that we can say, God, the enemy is coming against us. Prayer is a privilege that is given to the saints, that we have direct connection to the Father. It is never a chore. So the hope that we can find in our verse in 13 is the glory of God. That is the hope that we can walk away with. And it is through prayer. The least of us, the least of us can be the greatest Christian through prayer. It doesn't matter who, where you, what Bible college you went to, whether you call yourself pastor or apostle or whatever. That is irrelevant. The least of us can be the greatest in Christ. So we see the glory of God in our own lives and in our own church. The final scriptures that we have. Charles Spurgeon, it's not scripture, it's a quote. Charles Spurgeon, a wonderful man of faith, said that I would rather teach 10 men how to pray than 100 men how to preach. I would rather teach just 10 men how to pray than 100 men how to preach. Andrew Murray said, oh, let the place of secret prayer become to me the most beloved spot on earth. The place, the place of secret prayer. I love it when I'm just, you know, the, the kids are asleep or whatever, and I'm in my place, in my comfy chair. I've got a nice cup of coffee next to me. I've got my Bible open. That is my spot, and it is so sweet when you have that connection and you know that God you're connected that's what he's saying here let that place be the sweetest spot sought on the face of this earth R.A. Tory said that you know what when the devil sees a man or a woman who really believes in prayer who really knows how to pray who really does pray 
Above all, when he sees the whole church on its face before God in prayer, he trembles as much as he ever did. For he knows that his days in that church and in that community is at an end. <laughs> so imagine what great things God could do in your life if we would pray. What God could do in our life and in the marriage that God has blessed us with. And in our family, in our children as we're raising them up to know the living God. In our church, in our nation, in our relationships, at work. Imagine what great things God could do if we were to pray. So as we finally close, church, I pray that as we leave this, this house, as we leave this place, that the conviction that we will wear for life is that every Christian is called to do great things for the kingdom. But you won't be great because of your great intellect. We won't. We won't be great because of our great talent, because of my money. Right? I'm a mover and a shaker of my abilities. We will not be great because we went, I went to Bible college. But you will be great. You will be great if you have a great prayer life. Amen? Amen. Church, let us pray. Let us close in prayer. Father, Lord, we want to commit this. Like I made mention earlier on. So we're going to enter into the time of the Word of God. Because we're in the second message of a series message which we started last week. Last week we looked at the thought of being a better Christian. What is that? And how should I be a better Christian? So we looked last week at the subject of prayer. And what that means. And what that looks like. And what that means to God. And the priority that God places on that. Like I said earlier on, oftentimes because of life and the, and, and the, and the, the demands of that. Oftentimes the first thing to go in our life and in our discipline is prayer. We're going to look this week at serving, being a good Christian and entertaining that thought. And we're going to look at that as we look at the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles, why don't we turn? Um, I wonder if my brother Ashley would maybe close the door just in case it gets a little cold and breezy. And so it's uh, the second, the 22nd chapter of Luke. So we're looking at verses 24 through to 27. So let's shake off, because we're going to look at the issue of serving. The issue of serving. You know, in my experience, in my 46 years living on this earth, nobody really wants to be second best, right? Nobody that I've spoken to has said, hey, you know what, Pastor? I really like being second best. I like playing second fiddle. I like being the one that always comes second. I like being in the background. Nobody really likes to be the guy, maybe in science, that plays, you know, a supporting role to the guy that made the discovery. In the movies, nobody wants to play, you know, I don't want to win the best supporting act award goes to I don't want that prize. We want to live in the limelight, oftentimes. 
We want the accolade of life, oftentimes. Because we think ourselves great, we get some kind of uh, 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 feeling of achievement. When people comes up and exalts you, we're supposed to be exalting God, right? But we get that sense of like, yeah, of, of, of achievement, of being honored. When people comes up and says, hey, you know what? Um, you ought to be in the limelight. I don't, I don't know about him, but I think you should get it. I think you should get the accolade. We want the stage. We want the prize. We want the glory. Nobody wants to play, play second fiddle. We want the award. We want to win the award, right? We want the recognition of all our work that we do. Nobody wants to go unrecognized. That is the thought that we're going to look at today. Because we're looking at the subject of serving. I read a story today about the trappings of success. And this told a story of this man. So it's quite a sad story when you look at it, actually. Because this guy started with nothing. He started, uh, you know, growing up as a teenager. He was rejected by his family. A very hard, a very unloving family. He didn't get the love and support that he needed. He was rejected by his friends because he's a bit of an oddball. He didn't wear the most fashionable clothes and didn't say the most, I don't know, hip things to say. So he's rejected by his friends. So as he grew older, he entered into the world of business. He was rejected in the world of business. He was rejected in commerce. He became a loner also in business. So here he is, this man. He has no money, but he wants money. He has no friends, but he wants friends. He has no support. He has no love. There's nobody coming up and saying, here, I love you relevant of who you are and what you've done. I, I, I still value you. So here he is, he's grown up, he's a, he's a middle-aged man. And now he's trying to explore the world of commerce. And again, the same rejection that he's had in his childhood, all those horrible memories, is resurfacing. He said, and I'll read, he said that he vowed, he vowed then to gain success by any means necessary. I am going to get successful by any means necessary to the cost of everyone around me and even to the detriment of my very own soul. Wow. That's a pretty hard statement. So eventually this man, he got the success that he was looking for, but he lost everything else. He had no morality. He had no standard. He had no self-respect. So he'd got the success that he was looking for, but he lost the joy. He got the wealth and the recognition, but he lost everything else from every, everybody else around him. Nobody to share the experience with, because he didn't have a loved one, right? He didn't have any children, what's the point of that? He didn't want a wife, they're only gonna hurt you, right? They'll break your heart. So he was rich, he became extremely, extremely rich. But he was poor in everything else. 
So the question that I have for us today, oh sorry, the last quote that he said, he says, I want my success, he says, yeah, that's right, sorry, my bad. So he said, he said in a quote later on in the story, he said that many people come to him and say that, uh, that uh, you know, they want his success. You know, they look at his life and they look at the trappings and, and everything else that he has. And they said, you know what, I want, I want your success. But he said, you know what, you want my money? You want my fame? You want my accolades? But do you want my pain as well? Do you want my brokenness as well? Do you want my emptiness as well that comes with it? For all that I've had to do to achieve this, I carry a lot of burdens with me. So my question this afternoon is you want to become great? Are you willing to serve? Are you willing to serve? Because in our text, we've got the disciples that comes to Jesus and asks to be great in the kingdom of God. So again, if you have your Bibles, why don't we turn? Let's turn to the word of God. So it's Luke 22. It's verse 24 through to 27, and it reads, And there arose also a dispute amongst them as to which of them was regarded the greatest. And he said to them, The king of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not so, sorry, but it is not this way with you. But the one that is great amongst you must become like a youngster, and the leader like a servant. For who is wise? Yeah, so who is, so who is wise? The one that reclines at table, or the one that serves? It is not the one that reclines at the table, but it is, uh, sorry, it is not the one that reclines at the table, but I am amongst you as one that serves. Forgive me for that terrible reading of, of scripture. But let us pray upon the word. Father, we come before you in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ this afternoon, Lord, and we give ourselves to the word. Father, we pray, God, that you would speak to us in this service of serving, Lord. Father, I pray, God, that you would minister, Father, the importance of having that servant heart. Yes, absolutely, is necessary to achieve, and we are not advocating, you know, not achieving. But, Father, we're praying, God, that we would have a right heart when it comes to you, when it comes to uh, ourselves, when it comes to secular achievement. We're praying a correction from your word of God, Lord. Let us view success and service, Lord, correctly today as we give ourselves to the word and we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Church, Jesus came as a servant to show us what greatness looks like. Jesus came not coming to lord it over us. The Bible says that he could have come, right? As the great and embodiment of God himself, full of glory, gone to the, uh, the synagogues and the leaders and said, Behold, the Messiah, your king has returned. Bow before me, for today I establish that kingdom that you have long awaited. He could have done that. Jesus came as a servant. He came lowly to show us what greatness looks like. The greatest amongst us, the greatest amongst us today will use our abilities, we will use our gifts, we will use our talents, 
to lift up other people. That is a sign of true greatness, not ourselves. So we can recognize that, we can answer that question off the bat now of what a great Christian is. Because you can recognize them. You can recognize her. A great Christian is one that serves. You can recognize them because of their servant's heart. So let's get into the text because the context of our, of our scripture today is striving for greatness. We see that in verse 24 where it says that, and there arose also a dispute amongst them as to which of them was the greatest. So here we have, this is men getting together. This is, this is the center of like, you know, chest beating and, 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 and grunting and, and being a man. I can almost imagine it in a room somewhere and, and they're, 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 they're disputing, the Bible says. So the disciples are arguing over who is the greatest. The Bible says they're striving. That word means to contend, to dispute or to, to quarrel. They're quarreling over who is greatest or greater, who is larger. In the ancient world, it was who's eldest because we know that he that is eldest gets double portion, right? We get the blessing from the father. He is my firstborn son. He's the heir of my throne. So they're arguing, Lord Jesus, who do you really love? I know about John, but do you really love John, the one that you love? And they're tussling and they're arguing. I can just imagine them, you know, full of pride, full of arrogance. The disciples, which one of us is the top disciple, Jesus? You need to let us know because men has to have that, right? We have to have some kind of pecking order. Who's the alpha male in here? Who's the alpha female? And we want to we prioritize ourselves. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be the one that serves. What? That's not what we want to hear. We want to hear who, who, who can pray the loudest, right? Is that the sign of a Christian? Who can pray the loudest? Who can give the most? I gave a thousand pounds in the offering, Jesus, did you see? I healed and I prayed and everybody got slain in the spirit. Is that, is that what a Christian is? Jesus addresses that and says, he that is greatest will serve. He that is greatest will be recognized by their servant heart. And as always, Jesus goes further. It's not just because, oh, you know what, I'm doing this physically. Jesus has always drawn that parallel, right? The physical to the spiritual. It's a hard issue, guys, we're dealing with. It's a hard issue. This is another example of that kingdom paradox that we started off. So what is a paradox? It's a logical statement that seems to contradict itself. It's a paradox. It's a situation or a statement that seems impossible or is difficult to understand because it contains two opposing facts or characteristics. It is a paradox. Jesus is saying, if you want to be great, you must serve. Nah, Jesus, no. If I want to be great, I've got to have the best suit. I've got to have my Bentley outside, and I've got to have petals thrown before my feet so everybody can see my stature, right? Jesus says the opposite. It's a kingdom paradox. So what Jesus is doing here, church, he's pointing to humility. He's pointing to the humility that is found in the cross Jesus became a servant to meet my need, to meet your need for redemption. 
The Bible says in, in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, says that he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. Philippians 2 and 7 and 8. Born in the likeness of a man and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the point of, of the cross. Church, he humbled himself. We're looking to the great leaders of the Christian world. He humbled himself. He didn't lord it over. He didn't use all power and all authority that was given to him. The Bible says that he came in the likeness of man and he came as a servant. Are you saved today, church? Are you in the house? Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord? Do you? Really? Like, without a shadow of doubt. Because if you don't, I want to pray with you afterwards. I want to pray with you that when you leave this house, that you would have a confidence that is not found in yourself, in my own self-importance, in my own intellect. I've got a 2-2 two, two degree, you know. Or is that, that's not a good one. I've got a 1-1 one, one degree, all the university students. I've got a 1-1 one, one degree, you know. Do you know the, the, the career that I'm in? I want you to leave today with a confidence, not in yourself, not in your beauty, not in your outward you know, expression of who you are. I want to leave today with, a, with, a, with an absolute guarantee that before God, I am right, I am good. But if you are saved, it was because Jesus laid aside his majesty and he served the Father's will for you. If you are saved in the house today, it's because he was willing to serve Whilst I was in my sin, Jesus was serving me. He was serving the Father's will. Whilst I was in my flesh and going out and doing all kinds of things in Bournemouth, fulfilling the lust of my flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, Jesus came and served the Father's will. All the hatred and the anger that I had when I was you know, 20, 30 years ago, 25 years ago when I was unsaved, on drugs built up with rage, when everything in my mind was enmity, was an enemy before God. God came and served. He didn't stand over me and say, hey, I am the great I am. Mervyn, I have called you by name and you shall serve me. He didn't say that. So we need to be faithful today, church, because Jesus was willing to go to the cross for the Father's will, for each and every one of us. That is the extent of his love that he wants to convey today. And that was expressed. Love is, is, is an active thing. It's not a passive thing. It's a verb. If I say I love my wife and don't actually do anything to show it, that's not real love. Jesus showed his love. We need to be faithful today, church, because Jesus has already served. Notice on the enemy of your soul in his serving in the cross, in him serving the Father's will. He has come and he has served, notice, on the enemy of your soul, which is Lucifer, that God might deliver you. That is the power of serving. In our text, there is a warning, and it is one of selfish ambitions. <laughs> so this is where we get to the guy thing. And the girl thing, you're not excluded from this. So we've got selfish ambition going on in this, in this text. But church, the, the truth that we must see in this body of text and in, in this word that God wants to speak 
is that greatness comes when we're selfless. You want to be great. I want to be great. Greatness comes when you're selfless. We can see that in verse 25 and 26 of our text. So here we have, again, going back to the disciples, they're beating their chest, they're, they're grunting and they're, 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 dis, they're disputing amongst themselves. They're caught up, man. They're fighting amongst themselves. Jesus can hear them, he's outside. No, but I, I, I cured this person and I did this and I did that. They're caught up in selfish ambition. They're ambitious, they're ambitious, but it is a selfish ambition. Who is the greatest amongst us? So they're comparing themselves with each other. Just as a side note, church, the root to your discontentment, the root to you thinking you're not pretty enough, you're not strong enough, you're not intelligent enough, I, 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 I just will never achieve, is found right here. They're comparing themselves to other people. They're comparing their walk with other people. They're comparing their prayer life their love of God, their work. This is the root of your discontentment, just as a side note. But they're comparing themselves. Who's done more? Who's, who, who's prayed more? Who's seen more miracles? Who, who here is the longest serving disciple? I've known Jesus, he called me out first, you know. But here we have Jesus warns them about selfish ambitions and the very dangerous spirit that is behind it. I come to bring the warning that is in the text to us today. Again, the word isn't to uh, discourage achieving. I strive in achieving. I strive to do better every day. I strive to love more every day, to give more every day. I work, I'm a working pastor. I, I have to give myself of my job 100% every day. We have to educate ourselves. We have to overachieve. That is not what we're saying. That is not what we're saying. But Jesus here is putting a pin in the selfish ambition that can come from this. As you contend, as you strive, and as you argue with your work colleague, as you argue with your friends, these are your friends, they love you, but you're comparing yourself. You, I, look, I look more beautiful. Does, does, does my bum look big in this? Oh, yours looks so much better. How's your hair? And the men are there in the gym. I can lift more. I can lift, put another 10 plate on it. We're comparing ourselves. Jesus here is addressing the spirit that is behind the selfish ambition. It is a spirit. It is a spirit. You just want to lord it over each other is what Jesus is saying. You're not in it for the kingdom. You're not really, you just want to be superior is what Jesus is saying. You just want to have the title. You just want to be honored. It is all about you, disciples. What it actually is and what God is putting his finger on, disciples, is the spirit of pride. There is a spirit of pride that rises in each and every one of us. Don't look at me with that religious eye. There is a spirit, <laughs> there is a spirit of pride that rises up. In each and every one of us, we're humans. But God is saying, you know what? That spirit carries behind it self-promotion. It is a selfish ambition that does not serve the kingdom of God. It doesn't serve the will of the Father. 
but it is self-serving. So the reason that we must see this, what am I, well, the reason we must see this is that the desire for greatness is often selfish. There is a thin line. I want to be great, but sometimes we can be wrapped in it so tightly and so like, so like tightly you know, wound up that it becomes a very selfish ambition. But if we miss what we're talking about here, if we miss the spirit that God is trying to bring our attention to, if, he's, if, if we miss what the scripture is trying to give us that side note and the theme of the disciples, if we miss that, we will never be great. If we miss this, we will never be great because we will never be willing to humble ourselves and serve. We will never want to humble ourselves because we will always think of ourselves as as higher than we should, the Bible speaks of. But greatness depends on your certitude. The greatness in church depends on your servanthood. People who serve will see the greatness of God in their life. And we're talking about church right now. We're talking about the body of believers. Those that serve the will of God will see the greatness as you give of yourself and of your tithe and of your offerings. As we witness to the lost, as we follow up to those that are slightly weakened in their faith. Guys, we have to reconcile ourselves with the truth that if you want to be great, you want to have this spiritual dynamis, this, this power, it will come from serving. As we have our home groups during the week, Wednesday afternoon, it comes from serving. It is unrighteous when we point out what is lacking in our brother's life. We don't have in our own life, but it is not righteous when we point out what is lacking in somebody else's life, but we're unwilling to help them. We're unwilling to serve them. We're unwilling to make it possible for them to escape the madness that they're, they're going through. Greatness in our marriage. People are willing to serve in their marriage. will see the greatness. They will see the love. If we can exercise forgiveness, patience, forbearance. <laughs> we have to exercise that spirit of servitude not just in our church, that us also, God will bless and uplift and give that spirit that we can do more and love more, but also in our marriage, as we are patient with our wives. Amen. And all the husbands said, <laughs> as we forgive our wives, as we forgive ourselves, church. Bible speaks about forbearance. No, she's, left, she's left the toothpaste cover off again. <laughs> but we're looking about greatness in business as well. It's not just the spiritual. This is not just some lofty, uh, you know, cerebral message that, oh yes, pastor, I can see the benefits of being great in a spiritual sense. But we're talking about the secular as well. In business, people are willing to to serve, realize that, you know what, business is set up to meet the needs of the customer. Revelation. 
A business that you work in, <laughs> that you will start, is set up to minister and to meet the needs of the customer. So we have to serve. If we're so prideful that now I am the business owner, do you know I've got £2,000 in the bank? We miss it. We lose the customers. We lose focus. It's all about us. But we have to retain our focus. We have to look at the customer. You know what? A friend of mine said in London, he said, you know what? Every time I start a new job, when I enter into this new job, it's a new role, the first thing I ask myself is, what do they need? So what he does is he goes to the manager and it's like, what is lacking? What do I need? So he's looking for a way to fill that need. So there is things in the workplace, he knows a lot about marketing and things like that. If there's flies to be done, he ministers to that need. So he comes and he's looking and he's actively seeking opportunity to serve. He's serving. This is in the secular, guys. He makes himself indispensable. Do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? It starts from this. It is not just you doing, but it is a spirit and a heart that you have behind it. Again, the aim of business is to meet the needs of the customer. So you exist, guys, in business to improve the lives of your customers through your service. Revelation. Right? <laughs> but in the secular, it is true. But we're looking now at relationships one unto another. My friends, my brothers, my sisters, willing to serve each other's needs. To minister, man, you know what? How, how are things? Really? Don't tell me, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. I don't want to hear that. If you are, praise God. But how are you really? How are you really? How are you dealing with that thing that happened? Are you, is there anything I can pray Come alongside and support. Can I, can, I, can I help with the kids? I know you've got so many things that you're trying to do. As a friend, do you want to be great? Why don't you step in with a servant's heart? Let me bless you, my brother, my sister. Go out with your wife. Let me look after the kids. I want to pray with you. You're going through something. Let me come alongside you. We're talking about that heart, that servant heart. It is not just a super spiritual thought. It applies to every realm. I want to laugh with you, my sister. Tell me something funny. Tell me something we can rejoice over. I want to cry with you. Are you going through something? Is your heart so broken still from that relationship? I want to cry with you. I want to provide you a shoulder to cry on. That is the heart. That is the heart of servitude. You're never great if you want to take, take, take. Right? It's all about me. I am the center of my own universe. You will never be great, guys. We need, as a body, as saints, as those that are looking for God, we need to lift up. God wants to lift you up. He wants to exalt you. He wants you to overachieve. But until you find that you need to be a servant, until you find this, until you get this, God will not elevate you. Because you don't have the capacity in your heart. So God is trying to speak today. 
You know, we started saying that we want the limelight, right? We want the accolades. We think we're great when people exalt us and honor us. But the truth in our text, as we're, as we're winding up, the truth in our text that will change your life. It will change your, your mind and the way that you, you deal with things, you process things, uh, you react to things. The truth in our text is that the greatest person is not always the one that is doing the great things. The greatest person isn't always the person that's out in front. Yeah, let's charge from the front, guys. And... But the greatest person, in often times, is the one that's enabling. The greatest person, in often times, is the one that's coming behind. My wife, the power behind the throne. <laughs> Oftentimes, the greatest person isn't the guy at the front. No, um, Exodus 17 and 11, we can see that's in Aaron and her. So we've got the, uh, the, the battle, the great battle going on down here. And Moses is up high in the, on, on, you know, in the mountains. And he's praying, man. He's praying and he's lifting up his hands. Oh, man, Pastor Moses is praying for the people of Israel. They're in the midst of battle with the Amalekites. Amalekites, Am 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 yeah. He's praying. <laughs> and every time he's lifting up his hand, they're winning. But every time he's an old man and his hand dips, they lose. So here we have Aaron and her coming in and supporting the man of God. So his arm can be uplifted and the prayers can go out and the victory can be had for the people. The greatest sometimes isn't the man that is praying or the man that is preaching or the man that is in a position of authority in work. Sometimes it's you, her. Sometimes it's you, Aaron, that is facilitating that. We see that in 1 Samuel 14 and 7. Jonathan had a vision to attack the enemy of Israel. Man, these people are coming against my people. He's vexing his spirit. So him and his armor bearer, he says, you know what? Let's go. Let's just go. The, the, the armies of Israel is sleeping. Let us get our stuff and let us go. Who knows what God will do? The supporting act in his armor bearer. That's what we know him as. The armor bearer. He says, come we go. Come let's go. Let's do all. The Bible says that. It says, uh, 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 let's do what, do what you must do. Uh, I'm with you heart and soul. That's 1 Samuel 14 and 7. Guys, what am I saying? What am I saying? Sometimes we take the glory for ourselves, right? We want the limelight. We want to be the guy, the lead. No, not you, me. You know, I want to be the... But we think those who... So, yeah, we just... We, yeah, we, 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 we want to take that limelight. But that's, that's oftentimes, you know, we need to thank the people that has made that possible. Now, just bringing that home, we need to thank the people that's made it possible for us to be in university right now. The parents that's been praying for us, that my daughter would not lose her mind, that my daughter would find a church, would find Christian friends. We need to thank these people. We need to, we need to, we need to thank our teachers that has made themselves available. I'm not going to treat you, uh, uh, you know, uh, with any kind of partiality. We need to, to honour them. We need to honour our lecturers. 
We need to, we need to thank the guys that has made this possible. Our church, our brethren, pastors. You know, most of us, most of all rather, most of all in all of this, we need to be thankful towards Jesus. We need, to, we need to give him all the thanks. In John 15 and 5 says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to close, church, because the place that we have to come to is to become great in the kingdom. Forget being great in the eyes of man. Forget being great in my own head. I, I am the, I'm the hero of my own story. In my mind, as soon as I walk into a room, I've got a, I've got a theme tune. Da, 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 and I walk in. Let's forget. Let's forget that. We must become great. Not up here. But in the kingdom. How does God see you? So what we need to do is serve. Let's get some practical advice here. How do we do that? Firstly, it's serving the master. Secondly, it's servicing the need. So let's look at that as we close, very quickly. The spiritual step, this is the spiritual, the internal things that needs to happen. The spiritual step of serving the master. So we're saved to serve, church. Amen? God saved you that you may serve. So it's not right that we, are, that we are idle in the kingdom of God. There's nothing idle in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God goes past you. If you're standing there like, I'm not going to do it. It's not my job to do it. I'm not going to do it. Somebody else will come in because the kingdom of God and God's will will not be inhibited. It will not stop. We are saved. That we would mirror our Lord and our Savior as he come to serve. So much that I give my life for you. As we've covered, to forgive our sin, to redeem us, to do all of these, I give my life for you. So too, so too, it is a challenge that we can't be idle in the kingdom. Hebrews, 19, so Hebrews 9 and 14 says, The blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. When I'm in myself, unsaved, when I'm in my madness, my anger, when I'm in my addiction, I hear a lot of people in town say, hey, man, I'm trying to, you know, pray, I'm trying to, you know, reason, I'm trying to share the gospel. No, I'm good, bro, bro. I'm good. You're not good. The Bible here is saying that he needs to purify our heart our conscience, that we might be able to do works that serves God. We in ourselves can't do anything to serve God. In myself, I can do nothing to serve God. God needs to purify my conscience, purify my inner, my heart, and all of these internal things, the spirit that we were talking about, from these dead works he needs to make me alive in Christ that now I can do the works to serve him. The spiritual steps. Secondly, in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 9, and this is speaking of the Thessalonians, it says how you 
turn from God from idols, sorry, how you turn to God from idols to serve the living God. So this is again, it's an internal thing. I'm not talking about a right turn. The Thessalonians had a spiritual change of heart, turning from the things that profits, that doesn't profit, the idols, to now serve the living God. The practical step is that we too must have an internal change and a shift. Our conscience must be purged in order to do anything for God. We have to turn. But lastly, the practical step as we wrap up of serving the need is every person's greatest need in this whole town of Bournemouth and the world is Jesus. That is the greatest need. Oh, you know, uh, uh, I was speaking to, to, to my sister and, and we were talking about, because Bournemouth has a lot of poverty. It doesn't actually, it's quite rich, but there's a lot of poverty, homelessness, drunkenness, mis, you know, drug misuse coming in. And uh, me and my sister was, was, was talking a couple of weeks back and she's like, no, but pastor, look, you know, they need the money, they need this, they need that. I say to you, church, that the greatest need that the people have is of Jesus. There are many things that is happening as to why we have homelessness and addiction and all of these things. It's social, sociological, it's, it's mental, it's emotional, it's spiritual. Not always is it financial. If we just give him money, there is a multitude of different things, but the greatest need they have is Jesus that their minds would be healed, their destiny would be restored, their family would be healed, and all that God desired for them can be manifest. The greatest amongst you will serve the people's need for Jesus. We need to make you great. God wants to make you great. He wants to make you great in the secular world. Amen. We have to have more business owners. We have to have more people employing other people. Raising, you know, the, the standard. God wants to make you uh, great amongst your peers, amongst your friends. I am great not because of what I have and what I've done, but because of my testimony. You know, when I say something to you, I will do it. You know, what I say to you is because of what God has already done. God wants to make you great in your family. That you can be an upstanding man, a husband that is faithful to one wife. Oh, you know, back in the day when I was young, I was running up and down and doing all things. God wants to make you great in your marriage. That you can love and you can protect your wife. That you can be faithful. That you can provide. God wants to make you great. But church, if you honor him, he will honor you. Honor the Lord. I'm telling you, he will honor you. He has never let me down. Matthew 6 and 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. Proverbs 8 and 18 says, With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and righteousness. You want these things. God knows that. But it is found in him. It is Jesus Christ that makes this possible. By serving our needs, our greatest need. And that was at the cross. So as we wrap up, you know, we're going to walk out of these doors and try not to get wet. 
I want us to leave with a hope today. And that is the servant's reward. In our text, again, we're looking at verses 24 through to 27. Verse 27 of our text speaks about the servant's reward. So God's reward for his servant is true for Jesus. As we see in Philippians 7, 9 and, uh, 7 and 9, we've read this already. But he says that uh, but, uh, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God highly exalts him and bestows on him a name that is above every name. That was true for Jesus. But so too it is true for us today. In Hebrews 6 and 10, it says that God is not unjust. So as to overlook your works and love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So that's it. We've wrapped. We've finished. But imagine if you served God in his church and his people with everything that we have that he's given us, like we sang earlier on, withholding nothing, I give to you, my sister, my brother, withholding nothing, what do you need? If I can serve you, how would that affect our life? The relationship that you have one unto another. If we was able to give ourselves to our wife and our husband, withholding nothing, I am your servant. My body is your body, as the Bible says. Your body is my body. We serve one another. How would that manifest in our life? To our children, I serve these little ones. So that as they grow, they too will serve. So I pray as we go. Let the conviction of life be that as Jesus has come to serve, to show us what greatness looks like, that the greatest amongst us will use our gifts. We will use, we have gifts, man. We have abilities. We have talents to lift up each other, to lift up your husband, your wife, your friend. And as we honor him, he will honor you. Amen. So in answer to the question, what is a great Christian? You can recognize a great Christian because they serve. Amen. Let us close. Father, I am eternally thankful. So I want to continue in the message that we've been looking at. We've been looking at that thought of what it is to be a good Christian. I want to look today at the, at the, uh, at the subject of um, being saved by grace. Being saved by his grace. We're going to be looking at the book of Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, why don't we turn? It's, um, it's the book of 1 Corinthians. And it's um, the 15th chapter. And the verse is 9 and 10. So just those two verses. So we're just thinking about what it is to be a good Christian. 
Just in way of recap, we looked last week, pardon me, at, uh, at the subject of serving. We looked at that thought that, hey, nobody wants to be second best, right? Nobody wants to be remembered for, you know, the guy that almost made it. Nobody wants to be runner-up to, to anything. So we seek the limelight. We, we want to be permanent, pre, pre, preeminent. We want to be the one that's out in front. We want the stage, we want the praise, right? We want people to know the good things that we've done and who wouldn't. But we looked at the, su the subject of serving last week um, and the trouble that uh, we can get into if we become self-serving. So we're going to move forward this week and look at uh, the subject of, uh, uh, which I've entitled just by his grace, after the song, by his grace. And the thought that I want to explore, really, is that we deceive ourselves oftentimes into thinking that our efforts alone is all that has given us our success. I want to say again, just to explore the thought that it is your efforts that has resulted to your success. So, the life that you have created for yourself, right? That's what we say. I have created a life for myself, really. The money that I have made, right? That's what we say. I have made this money. The kids that I have had, the spouse that I have won, I did that. The business that I have created. I want to explore this thought that oftentimes we're deceiving, we deceive our, ourselves into thinking that it is only by your efforts. You've done this all by yourself. Clever you. There was a guy that many of you might know, and certainly the students, Albert Einstein, the great physician and mathematician. Well, Albert Einstein didn't make it on his own. The great mind that is Einstein had a guy called Max, Max Talmud. The great Albert Einstein had a mentor, not that Max, no. <laughs> but the great Albert Einstein had a mentor. Max introduced the 10-year-old prodigy to the key areas of maths and science and philosophy. Max was instrumental in the life of the great Einstein. So what he would do is he would uh, meet with, with, uh, with Einstein, the, the then 10-year-old Einstein, and his family, and, and once a week he would sit down at the table with Einstein and his family, and they would eat together, and they would reason. This mentor would stir Einstein into thinking about things, think deeper about things, and challenge him on his life and what he's choosing to do with it. He was 10. Einstein was not alone. You may have heard of this great man, Mozart. There's no um, music students here or music, I don't know, but Mozart, we know, pretty famous. So again, another child prodigy, but Mozart himself had a father that was noted to have helped him with most of her, his early uh, compositions. He believed him so greatly, he saw the potential of his son. He looked and he saw there was something in his son. At a very young age, he had it. 
He had the timing. He had a, an understanding which to many of his peers was beyond. His father came alongside him and was responsible for writing, or to help him certainly write, a lot of his early compositions. The great Mozart didn't do it alone. You may have heard of Oprah Winfrey. Oprah Winfrey and her success has credited to her father. So she said that there was a time in her life, she told a magazine, that if she hadn't gone to spend uh, that area, that section of her life with her father and, her, and, and his wife, her life would have gone the other direction. This is the richest woman in the world we're talking about, Oprah Winfrey. As she developed, as, her, as she came under the, the tutelage and inspiration and, and guidance, mentorship, love and protection of her father, she, she, she now began to, to get it. My life can count. I can do something. As she grew and developed into a young lady, her father introduced her to a professional. Uh, um, this guy was called uh, um, Jeff Jacobs. He was a lawyer, an agent, a manager, and a financial advisor. This is Oprah Winfrey. So we look at her now, but back then she had a lawyer, an agent, a manager, and a financial advisor who persuaded her, even at that early age, to think. Let's think. What she decided to do at that early age was instead of entering into the workforce as, an, uh, as a hired help, she established what is now Harpo uh, Publications, uh, sorry, Productions Incorporated, a multi-billion media company. As I say all this to say this, that nobody fails alone. Nobody succeeds alone. So what we need to do is we need to pay special and close attention to the people that God has put around us. God has done this. God continues to do this. All glory to God for the people that is instrumental in our lives, that God has brought into our lives for a specific reason. So the question that I have today to you is that is all your success and victory really down to your own ability? Really? All of my success and all of my ability and all that I have and all that I have accomplished and all that I have accumulated and all that is mine is down to me and my ability, really. Because in our text, we have Paul writing about the reason for his great effectiveness. He speaks of this dimension that he has called the grace of God. If you have your Bibles, why don't we turn? So we're reading from the book of 1 Corinthians, and it's chapter 15, and it's verses 9 and 10. And he says that I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of Christ. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet, not I. But the grace of God that was in me. Let us pray, church.
Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and we bring our lives before you, Father. My Father, we contend as individuals, as women, and as men of the Most High God to have this dimension in our life. I'm talking about your grace, the grace of the Almighty God. I pray today would be known in every life, would be recognized, would be a tangible thing that we can quantify in our life today. And I pray this, my God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, you become great when you function above your own limitations. We all have limitations, no matter what you, whether you see it or not. <laughs> we have limitations. But you become great when you operate and you function outside of these. So you need more than just your own effort. You need to be empowered by him. Because you become great when you have this dimension of grace that we're talking about here. You can become greater than you are now. You can do greater things than you're currently doing. You can operate at a higher plane than you are. Oh, I know you're very talented, very equipped and very educated and, and all of that in your physical. But what we're looking at today is a dimension outside of the physical. And this is where God gets involved and he calls that dimension my grace. The context of our text today as we're about to get into it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says that the power is not in me, but the power is in his gospel. So in the, ninth, in the third verse of our text, so we're reading from 1 Corinthians 15, but in the third verse, Paul says that Christ has died for our sin. In the fourth verse, Paul says that he had buried, he's been buried, and he's raised. Jesus Christ is not dead. He's buried, but he raised on the third day. In the fifth through to the eighth verse, he explains how this Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited Savior, then appeared to all of the disciples. So it's not just me making this up. This isn't just a feel-good feeling that I'm whipping myself into a frenzy. He's saying from three verses, five to eight, it's not just me that he has appeared to, but he has appeared to many others as well. The 10th verse, Paul says, I have achieved. But it was by his grace alone. So today, church, we must be thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ. Because it is through his cross that we gain God's grace. And as we gain God's grace, we gain that change to our lives. We operate now not just on the plateau that we see. What is that? The five senses? Touch, feel, smell, hearing. As we see this, the cross of Jesus Christ, 
we enter into this dimension that God has established and he calls that my grace. And as we enter into this grace, he says that you will experience the change even as Paul has experienced. In the book of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, by grace, you were saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It is not a result of works that any man should boast. Are you saved today? Do you know that Jesus Christ is the risen Christ. He died, but he raised again. No other man in all history claimed and prophesied, I'm going to die, but then I'm going to raise this body unto the glory of God so that you would believe what I'm saying is true. I am Lord. I am Messiah. I am the one that has been awaited. Are you saved today? Do you know this Lord? Because if you don't, I want to pray with you afterwards. There is an opportunity every Sunday as is extended. It is God's love that keeps extending. Oh, he keeps pleading with you. Be reconciled to me, my son, my daughter. But if you are saved, it is the grace of God that did what you couldn't do. It is the grace of God that did that. It is the grace that transformed you and is transforming you. This is an active verb. You are saved and you continue to be saved. You are transformed. You, the Bible says you are a new creator, a, a new creature. But that is a renewing. It is, it, is a, it is a, what is that, a verb? It is an active thing, right? You will be saved and you continue to be saved. That word grace, just to give some uh, understanding before we, we, we move further. Grace is defined. God has defined grace as something that is unearned. It is unmerited favor. It is unmerited. I cannot do anything for myself. I am without anything that, is, that I can purchase this. God says, my grace, put your money away. You cannot buy this. I give it to you as a free gift, as an expression of my love. It is, a, it is, it is favor given without expectation of return. There is no expectation of return. It is his grace. It affects a man's sinfulness. Oh, before I knew the grace of God, the Bible says I was a sinful man. But grace changed, saved me. And he can save every repentant sinner today. Every man that desires to know God, God says, you will know me. I say again, every man, every child, every, every woman, every person that desires to know whether God is real or not, whether God can change me or not, can get to know this God. It is down to the individual. He transforms us into new creatures that we can love once again. That stone, the hardest stone that I once had. I'm not gonna love you, I'm only gonna break my heart like all the other women, right? All the other, I'm not gonna trust. 
I'm not going to open my heart because I, was, I had it broken once, you know. And I'm not going to... Ch- God says that I will transform you into a new creature. That you don't have to live like that anymore. That you can love and you can trust and you can seek the righteousness of God. All of that is afforded to us by his grace. Paul said, I persecuted the church. I spent my life hell-bent persecuting the church. But it was by grace that now I build the church. Grace will change you. Grace grace will, will, will change the way you look at yourself. Your anger issues, your violent tendencies, your lying tongue, the cheating ways, you know, the sexually immoral behaviors, the drink, the drugs and all of that. The grace of God is able to meet you where you are, meet you where you are, and is able to bring change to the way you think about yourself because God doesn't think of you like that. The way you think about yourself God doesn't think about you like that. It is his grace. God's transforming you into a great Christian. It is by his grace. So there's a lesson to learn here as we get into it. And that is the secret of greatness. So we looked last week at the misconceptions of what one perceives to be great. And it's surely this guy because he's tall Like my brother Glenn, he's got a deep voice, you know. Surely this is greatness. The world would would see this man and uh, look at him and as he speaks, they do, right? He's a a no-nonsense guy. This woman, she speaks, bam, it's done. That is great. What we saw last week, that's not great. It might be great to man, certainly. Man would say, wow, this guy is like a... Powerful, But God says, you know what? Your greatness will be when you humble yourself before me and you serve your greatness before God as he come to serve. God exalted him. The same is true for us. There is a secret to our greatness. The truth that we must see is it takes more than your effort to become great in the kingdom of God. It, it, it's, it's more than, and more, more than your, your skills, your abilities, your persuasive words. I know you have a very winsome personality. You know, my sister Kizzy can sing. It takes more than that. Not this in the singing, we welcome that. If anyone can sing, praise God, come and help us. But it will take more than your physical efforts to be great in the kingdom of God. God is not looking at that. Paul says, I was, it was, it was the grace, uh, uh, it was the grace that, that was working in me that changed me. Purely. Paul is saying that I labored. But then he goes on to say, yeah, you know what, it wasn't I, but it was the grace of God. As we read through Paul's exploits, we know the things that he's done. We know the beatings that he's taken, right? This guy was beaten up black and blue and and every shade in between. He was kicked up. He was kicked out of town. He was left for dead. He was stranded in the sea. A lot of things. But he says, as I done these things and as I labored, 
Oh, you look at me and you think, oh, Paul, I want to be just like you. He says, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God. It wasn't just his efforts. It wasn't just his labours. It wasn't that Paul had a great strategic mind. As we understand that the other apostles primarily was sent to the Jews, Paul is responsible for evangelizing most of the world, establishing everybody else as Christians, Gentiles, right? It wasn't because of his strategic mind that, you know what, they're concentrating, the Jews is predominantly in, in Judea, right? Jerusalem. It wasn't him thinking, I'm going to go to Asia, uh, uh, Asia Minor, I'm going to go to this place and that place. But it was the grace of God. It was the grace of God. Guys, the reason we've got to see this, the reason why I'm harping on this morning, is because so many think that it's all down to our own labours. I am my own man, I have my own business, and you know what, nobody can tell me anything you know, about all this palaver. I did this, I have made my money, and I am the man. But if you miss this, you would labour so much more, and you will never see beyond your own ability. You will keep labouring, labouring, and you will never go beyond your own right hand. Because greatness needs more than your, your efforts. Greatness needs a divine dimension. I say again, your greatness needs a divine dimension. So this is the dimension that we spoke about. As we step out and step beyond our limitation. If we want a great church, it's going to be more than just human efforts. It's more than just talent, as wonderfully talented as Kizzy is. It's going to be more than just a charisma or a personality or whatever else. If we want to be great reaching the world for Christ and witnessing, it's going to be more than our own human efforts, church. More than just our words. You know that Jesus Christ died for you. You know that, uh, you know, trying to answer the clever answers. The world has always got something smart to say about Christians. The world has always got something smart to say about Christ. It's not you they're mocking. But it's God. So it's not going to be in your smart and your clever answers and your human efforts. Church in our marriage and in our home is going to take more. It's going to take more than just our human efforts. We'll work it out, babe. Don't worry, we'll work it out. It's going to take more to pay the bills. It's going to take more to provide clothes for our beloved ones. It's going to take more to put food in their bellies. It needs a dimension of divine grace. All of these things in our family, in our home, in our church, witnessing, it needs a dimension of divine grace, church. We need to operate outside of our own right hand, outside of our limitation. We deceive ourselves into thinking that our efforts alone has given us great success. 
If you believe that this morning, you deceive yourself into thinking that it was your efforts that has given you all of what you have. But the truth in our text today, this morning, that will hopefully go to helping us change our mind, change how you look at yourself, change how you see your own abilities, is that grace is an essential element in all that we do. The grace of God is an essential element in all that we do. Are you saved? It's an essential element in all that you do as a Christian. Are you unsaved? God's grace is on you. You must labor as believers to advance the kingdom of God. Absolutely. But without the grace of God, guys, we labor in vain. The Bible says in Psalms 127, 1 and 2, it says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord, so unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that we rise up early and go late to rest. Eating the bread of anxious toil. We wake up early in the morning, going to work, we're toiling. We come back late, toiling. The Bible says it is in vain. It finishes in saying that for, the, for he gives to his beloved sleep, rest, peace. God is trying to tell you that unless God is involved, you do this thing which is temporary. You labor in vain. So guys, the place that we must come to as we kind of bring the message together is that we need to labor Sorry, the uh, uh, we, we, uh, yeah, place we must come to is that the labors must have, you know, the results, the good results, the great results. So what we need to do, we need to allow grace to work through us. Never let go of the grace of God. Oh, I don't need grace. I just need, I just need a strong cup of coffee, a belly full of food, and off I go to work. Right? That's what we think. Two-dimensional. What I'm saying to you is that you need to allow. Relinquish yourself of all of these things that you hold on as strength and intelligence and what makes you you. Release and allow God's grace to work through you. How do we do that as we, as we wrap up? Firstly, humble yourself, young man. Humble yourself, older man, older woman. Humble yourself. And secondly, we need that empowerment that comes from grace. We need to humble ourselves and we need to be empowered by him. So the first step, that spiritual step of humbling by his grace. In verse 9, Paul says that I have never lost sight. I have never lost sight of his grace. I didn't deserve what God has given me. I, I, have, I have never deserved the salvation. I have never deserved the giftings, the anointing, the ministry, the fruitfulness. I have never deserved. 
Too many Christians today has this, 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 this sense of entitlement. This enti- in, entitlement mentality. That you know what? God owes me. If he's a good God, he, he, needs, he needs to be giving me the fruitfulness and the money. Right? He needs, to be, he needs to be giving me my health right now. Do you know how long I've been single? Yeah, I need a spouse. I need to be happy. I need the popularity. I need, I need, I need. We have this entitlement mentality. Humble yourself, my brother. Humble yourself, my sister. Thank him for saving you and delivering you by his grace towards you. You did nothing to earn it. <laughs> the, singer, the singer in our opening song, I think, declared this so clearly. Now again, Stormzy, I don't know, and I wouldn't advise you to listen to much more than that song. I don't know of his position before God, whether he's saved or not. I don't know. But certainly I know that that song must have been inspired of the Holy Spirit because he realizes it so, he encapsulates it, this message that we're talking about, so well. He says, and I won't sing it, but he says, Lord, I've, I've been broken, although I'm, I'm not worthy, you fixed me, I'm blinded by your grace. You came and saved me. That is it. That is the heart of contriteness. That God would say that is a man and that is a woman that gets it. I'm broken. I'm, I'm, I, am, I, am, I am not worthy. But, but you have fixed me. So I'm, I, am, I cannot see how graceful you are towards me. I'm blinded by your grace. It's like a love of a wife that just, just keeps loving you and loving you. You receive once, excellent. Then she loves you again. Oh, another one. And then and, and you become so overwhelmed by the love. That's what he's saying here. I am blinded. I, I, what, is, what is man that you would be so mindful? In the ninth verse of our text, as you study into the, 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 you know, the subject matter, in the Greek, uh, Paulus Minimus Minimus, rather. Paulus Minimus. He starts off that I am the least of the apostle. Paulus Minimus. So here we see when we have Paul, he's digressing in our text. He's digressing. He's moving away from the central message that he's trying to teach. And the thought that we have here is, you know what? Thoughts of what I used to be before. And all that I have become since. And what he has done through my life by his grace. So it leads the apostle here in two thoughts. One, the inherent weakness, the inherent need, the inherent nothingness of his life. And two, the greatness of the grace of God. That's what's going on here. So we know in our text there is, a, there is a mingling together of expression of just intense, personal feeling. He's blinded, Paul, by the grace of God. Because you know what? I recognize who I am. 
I know who I am. Oh, you might be able to fool others. We've got a very nice suit and don't I look very smart? I know who I am, Paul is saying. Stormzy is saying the same. Though we may be able to present this front to other people. Before God, all is naked. I know who I am. Romans 12 and 3, as we, as we wrap up, it says, For by the grace given I say to everyone, yes, sorry, um, by grace given I say to every one of you, do not think yourself more highly than you ought to. Don't think of yourself too highly, my brother, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. In accordance with, all, uh, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of us. We think of ourselves up here, right? Because I am, I am, I am a man. I have lived so many years and I have, I, I have overcome and I have seen many things. You guys, you're gullible, you're young. You don't understand. But me, I'm a man. You think yourself too highly. Humble yourself, my brother. Secondly, and as we close... So that's the spiritual step. We need to have a, a contrite nature. We need, to, we need to recognize the mess that your life was in before Christ. And the mess of the torture and the thoughts and, and all of the vile things. You need to recognize from where God has rescued you. You need to acknowledge all that God is doing. You need to see the grace that is on your life now. That's what Paul is saying. Let us be, let us have that spiritual that spiritual change in us. Secondly, the practical step as we, as we close is the empowered, the empowerment by his grace. And we can see that in the 10th verse of our text. Paul is saying that everything we do, we do by the power of his grace. Everything that we do, that we have overcome, everything that we have has been because of his grace, because he has empowered us to do that. 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11 says that as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as a good steward of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. By his grace we are saved. It is by his grace that we can serve, church. It is by grace that we can sing so beautifully. It is by grace that we can, I can stand before, before you today and preach and pray for you and fast and witness and, and, and give and forgive and love. It is by grace that we can come before him and worship. All of these things are by his grace. We pray for grace. We have to pray for more grace. Church, we have to pray for more grace upon our own life and that of our children, our marriage, our home, finances, work. More grace. In Psalms 25 and 16, it says, turn to me. Speaking about God, the psalmist says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Are you lonely today? Are you afflicted? 
Do you have so many double thoughts in your mind even now? You need the grace of God. Because if you're listening to the voice of the enemy, if you're listening to your anger and all of the despair, it's not going to turn out well. You're going to be consumed by it. You're going to be overwhelmed by it. You need the grace of God upon your life. It is grace. We need grace. When we're struggling, we need his grace. Are you struggling? When we're in pain, marriage or finances, whatever, we need the grace of God. Are you fatigued? Are you still struggling with failure? What about the family? What about our marriage? Are we experiencing barrenness? You don't need to, we're going to work it out, babe. Let's roll up our sleeves, and that you should. But if you do it in your own self, in your own strength, in only what I can do with my hands, men like to, to control, right? Don't worry, honey, I will fix it. I, 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 will, I, will, I will get it done. We, 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 we like to do that. That's, that's in us. That's in us. But if that's all we're operating with, we're not going to go very far. We need to operate by his grace. Call upon his grace today. As we close, it's not us. Jesus Christ, the resurrected King, Messiah, he stands before the face of the Father perpetually to make intercession for us. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. As we call upon his grace, he brings it to God. Oh, God, that you, we, need to, we need to agree on this. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we need to agree. We need to pour out. This child of mine is suffering. The marriage, the finances, we need. So as we, as we engage our faith, as we engage our faith, God makes it possible by giving us his grace to compensate for our weakness, for our failings, for our pride, our arrogance. Jesus makes this possible and he compensates that. 2 Corinthians 2, uh, 12 and 9, it says that my grace for you is sufficient. My power is made perfect in your weakness. He says that where you are weak, where sin abounds, my grace abounds the more. Are you weak today? That word, sufficient, is the Greek word akari. I might have pronounced that wrong. But what that sufficient means is that I will keep off. It is an assist. I will suffice. It is to satisfy. So apparently as we're studying out the Greek, it's a primary verb and it's properly to, to ward off to ward off or to avail. My grace is sufficient. I will ward off what is coming against you. I will ward off. We need the sufficiency of Christ to ward off and to avail in our situation. Are you still stuck with just your fist? We could only punch one target at one time with this. But with my faith, and with, my, with the grace of God, I punch a multitude of different things in the spirit. Are you so two-dimensional in your thinking? You're rudimentary. You don't allow for the supernatural. But I'm saying to you today, there is a dimension outside of yourself. God has called that 
his grace. So as we close and we, we go off to have a wonderful Sunday, we can walk out with hope. You may have walked in thinking, ah, oh, you know what? You can walk out with hope if you will take this on board. That it's more than our own physical, it's, it's, it's more than our own physical work, our own physical effort. I'm a man, I'm gonna move, I'm gonna shake, I'm gonna sort it, babe. Don't worry. Yeah? You're a woman, you like to you like to organize, you, you, you know, you need to nag. Let's nag him. Did you need to do this? Not all women nag, forgive me. But all I'm saying is that if we take it upon our own head, there's a limitation to, all, to, to, to sorting things out. You may address it temporarily, but it's sticking a plaster on a gaping wound. You need the grace of God. In the 10th verse it says, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. So it is effectual. It works. It says, no, I worked harder than them all. So he's not negating the fact that we need to engage. Yes, we need to do something. We're not just going to sit down. We need to do something. But he says that I worked, harder than, uh, I worked harder than them all. Yet as I worked, I stepped into this dimension. And he says, not yet I. But it was the grace of God that was in me. So it's not just down to what you can do. Grace goes beyond your efforts. Grace means that the power of God is now at work. So that's why we don't lose heart. You might have come in thinking, ah, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm on my elbows. I'm literally like crawling, trying to keep this thing alive. We're, we're fighting this fire, we're fighting that fire. I don't know what. That's why we don't lose heart. Because the grace of God is with us. It's not in our efforts. It's not just down to us. Because God now gets involved. So imagine if you did all that you can. Absolutely. We're going we're gonna to sit down and we're going to work things out. Where is it going wrong? Uh, what have I missed? What have I not understood? Uh, uh, let, me, let me pray. Let me confess. We're going to work things out. Absolutely. But imagine if we do and have done all that we can. And then we let God do the rest. We engage our faith. We come together. Let us pray. Let us believe upon the word of God. And, we, we engage, and now God's grace gets involved. Now God can be centered in this that we're facing. That is the greatness that we speak about. Christians can be great because of this dimension. Wives, wives, husbands, you can be great. We can be great. <laughs> Amen? <laughs> we can be great <laughs> if we engage this dimension which I'm talking about. It is the grace of God. We can serve because of the grace. So I pray as we, as we leave this place, we're finished. But I pray as we, as we leave this place, we go with the hope, but also with the conviction for our life, for our marriage, for our situation, that you become great when you function 
above your limitations. Above your limitations. We've only been created with two legs, two arms, one big old coconut that has limitations. We don't understand all things, but we serve somebody that does. So you need more than your own efforts. We need his empowerment. Because you, you can become great. We can step outside, we can become great. But it is done by the grace of God on our lives, amen. Amen. Why don't we close in prayer? Father, just extend a warm welcome to everybody that is in the house today. We're gonna, we're gonna hear from God today. We're gonna, this is the last of the, the series message which we've been looking at. So we've been looking at the thought of how and what is, uh, what is it to be a good Christian. I want to look today at being flexible for the kingdom. One of the things that kept coming back during conference was the challenges that people face. You know, Pastor Brown would, would challenge, we need a worker to go to Jamaica. Would you go? We need a worker, a man, a woman, a married couple to go to uh, the Netherlands, to go to Germany. We need somebody to go to Doncaster. Would you go? The overriding thing that kept coming back to me as I'm speaking to these new pastors and the people that are going in that maybe pastored before, the overriding thing that they've said is that you have to be flexible. You have to be flexible in your life. You have to be flexible for the kingdom. We're going to be reading from the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, why don't we turn? God is going to speak this afternoon, church. So we're going to look at the ninth chapter, verses 19 through to 23. 19 through to 23. <laughs> uh, because the truth is, you will never be great in the kingdom, you will never be great in life if you're too stiff, if you're too rigid to embrace and to accommodate the changes that happens in your life. You're too stiff and rigid with work and the people and the demands that's been asked off you. You're too rigid with the, the brothers and the sisters around you, your spouse with the kids. You're too rigid and fixed in your position regarding your outlook on life. It's got to be this way. I can't variate. There's no, no room to maneuver. In our worship, we are too rigid and we are too stiff in our behavior. We're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, verses 19 through to 23. As many of you know, I'm a, I'm a keen martial artist. Maybe not so now, I'm old and fat. But as a, as a youth, from the, age, <laughs> from the age of 14, I was in the martial arts. I did what's called the Tai Shu Quan, which is Chinese boxing for four years. And then I went into um, Kaiko Shinkai, which is karate. 
Uh, and I did that for you know, a number of years. Uh, I trained the kids and wonderful. I loved the martial arts. One of my biggest uh, uh, idols and heroes was Bruce Lee. I grew up in the 80s, man. So, you know, Snake and Crane and, and Monkey and all those old films. You know, Jackie Chan. But Bruce Lee was one of my greatest, like, heroes in, in martial arts. Bruce Lee once said that, talking about stiffness, he said, notice that the stiffest trees is most easily cracked. It says, what the bamboo or the willow survives by bending with the wind. Bruce Lee says that he believes in the, uh, he believes in the firm goal, but by being too firm or too fixed, you can actually damage yourself. So here we are, Bruce Lee, taking an example from nature, looking at the stiffest and most you know, rigid of the nature of, of trees. And he observed that the weather, the wind and the rain and the, all the, that beats against that tree, he observed that these stiff, stiff trees, the non-flexible trees, was actually the one that is most easily cracked. That is the one that is most easily cracked. I'm thinking of our minds. I'm thinking of our lives. I'm thinking of our family. How can you be great, is the question today, if you are unwilling to be flexible? How can you reach your potential in Christ? How can you reach your potential in life if you refuse to be flexible? In our text, Paul writes about his flexibility for the kingdom in order that he might reach souls. So if you have your Bibles, why don't we, why don't we turn? So it was 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through to 23, and it reads, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible, verse 20. To the Jews I became like a Jew, to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one who is under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those that are under the law. Verse 21. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but are under the law of Jesus Christ, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. Church, let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would minister this word past our minds and into our heart, Lord. I'm asking, oh God, Lord, that your people 
would be as flexible as the illustration has said, Lord. God, that as we grow and as we travel in life, Father, we would have a flexibility in our mind and in our walk to, 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 to adjust, Lord, to the changing of the season. Let us not be too rigid or fixed in our position, but let us be flexible that we may be most effective for your kingdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people say, Amen. Amen. Church, you can do all things through Christ that strengthens you. But you must adapt to people. You must adapt to your problems. You must adapt and overcome your predicaments. Great Christians must be flexible for the kingdom. The theme of our text is winning souls to the kingdom of Christ. In the 19th verse, Paul says, my aim is to win more and more to Christ. That's the theme. In order to reach people, he says, I myself must be flexible. I must be flexible. It says, in meeting people where they are, I must be flexible to bring them from where they are to where Christ is. I must be flexible. And I say this to all of us today. The same is true for us whether in our secular world or whether in, the, in, in our Christian world. Paul is saying there is something that is needed upon our walk and that is the degree of flexibility. So for you to advance in your education, in university, in school and in college, you must be flexible. In, for us to overcome life, work, for us to gain the breakthrough, you're going to need to be flexible today, church. For the kingdom of God to advance, it requires flexible disciples. This is a picture of the cross because Jesus meets you where you are. He met you where you are to, to bring you where you are to where God is. Hebrew 2.14 says that since the children have flesh and blood, he himself also shared the same thing. So by his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Are you saved in the house today? Well, if you are, Jesus met you where you were. He met you exactly where you were and is bringing you to where God is. We're as far away. If you was like me, you was rebellious in your mind. You was, you was lost in your sin. But God came down, condescended himself, put himself in, in, this, in this temporal frame. He took on flesh and blood that he might bring you near to God. If you had to meet God where he is, you would never be saved. Because you were still in your drink. You were still in your drugs. 
You were still in the lifestyle that was immoral. You were still a liar, still out there as an adulterer. If we had to do it on ourselves and meet God where we were, we would not be saved. God is taking you somewhere today, church. God is bringing you somewhere. God condescended himself that he may bring you to where God is. John 14 and 2 says, My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, why would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? God is bringing you somewhere. He's bringing you somewhere. He's not finished with you. He knows your situation. He knows your location. He knows what goes on in your mind. And he's bringing you to himself. God is taking you to where he is. In your family, he's taking you where he is. In your finances, in, the, in our mind, he's drawing us, church, to where he is. In the decisions that we are making, God is bringing us to where he is. But there is a challenge in our text, right? And that is one of being flexible. Because I don't know about you, man, but I don't like being flexible. I like it my way. I, I, know, I, I know what's happening tomorrow, and I know what's happening next week. I like to plan, and I know I, I can plot my journey. I can see where I'm going. But God says in our text, you need to be flexible. You need to account for things which is beyond your field of vision. You need to be flexible. You need to have a dimension on your life, on your walk, that takes this into account. Because if you don't, like that solid tree, you are the person that is most probable to crack. You're going to crack. The truth that we must see is that you must be flexible in order to advance the kingdom of heaven. Paul says the kingdom, the kingdom needs is above my comfort. He says my heart's desire is for, the, is for the gospel to advance and to reach all men. That is my, that is my overriding desire. He says my response is to what is needed, not to what is easy. Paul is saying here that I have made myself flexible enough to reach every person. That word made is, to, is, is, is produced by making. It is preparing, made. He's preparing, he's produced, he's produced by making. It's an active thing. So it's in the process, in a particular way. If you, if you, you know, do a word study on what the word made means, it's in a particular way, as in a well-made garment. I made myself, I positioned myself, I prepared myself as a slave for everyone. I did that. I, I made myself, I willed myself, I condescended myself, I produced in the making, I prepared, I made. Church, the reason we must see this is that we won't always have things on our own term. <laughs> we won't always have it our own way. We won't always have our own preferences. So you may need to make yourself by somebody else's design. You may need to make yourself by somebody else's design. Paul 
was told that he was going to be led by somebody else, by somebody else's design. Peter, you're going to be led by somebody else's design. This won't be what you want for yourself. You won't always have things your own way. You won't always have things on your own terms. And what will happen when somebody says no to you? No. No. You're in work? No. You're in university? No. You're in school? When you can't have it on your own terms, on your own preference, what will happen? Will you snap like the branch or like the tree? Because if you miss this, you won't be great because you won't be flexible. You will never reach the potential that God has given each and every man and woman and child in here because you will not be able to adjust and adapt and be flexible in your mind and in your thinking. It could cost us our children, fathers. If we're too rigid, mothers, because we won't listen to them. We won't want to talk to them. We don't want to understand their point of view. All we want to do is we just want to, we just want to command, right? <laughs> do as I say. You want to punish. Nothing wrong with smacking children. You spare the rod, you spoil the child. That is not what we're saying here. What I'm saying here is that we, if we are inflexible, and too rigid to address and, uh, and apply this to our family, we run a risk of losing our little ones. We don't realize they're growing up. They can't be treated like babies anymore. If we're inflexible, it can cost us our children because it will, we will lose their respect. You never listen to me anyway. You don't understand what's going on in my heart. I was trying to tell you what was going on in my school. All you want, you don't want to listen. You just want to dish out rules, right? But it can cost us our converts as a church if we're too rigid. We want them to be perfect instantly. Put a shirt, put a shirt and tie on. But I've just come here. <laughs> we want them instantly to be what we are. We don't give them time to grow. We don't give them time to understand. We don't give them time to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't give them time to work out their own spirituality and their own salvation before God. But we forget that it took you as long as it has for you to be where you are now. If we're too rigid, if we're too inflexible, it can cost us our marriage and our relationships because we refuse to compromise. Only see what the other person needs to do. All you see is what the other person needs to do. Can somebody say amen? amen. <laughs> we won't apologize. We won't admit our faults. We won't bear the blame of part of what has blown up in the house. We're too rigid. We're too fixed. It will cost us our ministries if we're too rigid. And we may want church to be like Walthamstow. We saw that, right? What a powerful illustration of where we are going. Did you see the projector? The big screen? The praise and worship? Did you, did you hear that? Amazing. Beautiful women here. Pastors there. There was chairs. The ushers was at the door. There was... If we're too rigid and inflexible, 
We won't, be adapt, we won't be able to adapt to our city and where we are. That is in the future. But now, now we need to be flexible. Now we don't have those wonderful speakers and all of these things. We need to be flexible. We started off by saying that we would never be great if we are too stiff or rigid to embrace and accommodate change in our lives. I say again, you will never be great if you are too stiff if you're too rigid to embrace and accommodate changes that happens every day, God will speak. Go this way. Nope, I'm going this way. God will speak through a brother. Brother, I've got a word for you. God has told me X, Y, and Z. Nope. You won't receive from the pastor that says, you know, my brother, my sister, the course that you are heading is not the will of God for your life. Nope. You're, you're, you're rigid. You're inflexible. But the truth in our text, that will give us help, that would hopefully recalibrate, and if we apply it, would change our lives, is that greatness requires you to be flexible. Greatness requires you to be flexible. So it's not that we want you to, to, to uh, it's not that we want you to, to compromise your faith to fit in. Absolutely not. That's not what we're saying here. It's not that you're saying that you need to grow lukewarm to accommodate. That is not what we're saying here. I say again. Our change, our, inf our flexibility, our ability to, to adapt. I am not saying that we now need, because I'm here, I need to compromise my faith to fit in. That's not what's going on in our text. We don't need to grow lukewarm. You know, I need to drop my standards to accommodate. That's not what Paul is doing here. I need to be unrighteous a little bit just to appease. You know, I'm too, too holy. That's not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying is that he's meeting the things where they are. He's meeting the problems and the issues and the complication where they are. He's meeting people where they are. That they might be brought where God is. So the place that we have to come to is that we have to gain more and more for the kingdom. So what we need to do, church, is we need to be flexible. We need to be flexible for the kingdom. So how do we do that? In one of two ways. Firstly, in being a servant. And secondly, in being what is needed. So let's walk, well, let's walk out this, uh, the spiritual step of being a servant. Let's have a look at that. So this is the internal things that we're talking about. This is the, in, this is the spiritual that needs to change. In verse 19 of our text, Paul says that I made myself a servant. So, we looked at that process, right? We looked at what that word meant, made. So that we looked at, it's, it, is, it is a process. It is, it is something which, which doesn't happen overnight. I can't make myself into being what I want to be overnight. So that definition of made is, as we looked at, it is a process. It's making and is preparing 
But also what is, what is meant by the word is that it was done in a particular way. And that's what God is saying here. It was done in a particular way that would best serve God's purpose. In the ancient world, there would, if I had a big debt, if me and my family, man, I lost my job, uh, you know, my children has no milk nor meat. In the ancient world, what I could do is I could go to this man here. He's, he's, he looks like a master. He's got lots of cattle, big houses. So I can bring myself to him and say, I, I, I give myself in your service, uh, Master Glenn. And uh, <laughs> I want to be enslaved to you. So I make myself a slave. But that is on an agreement between me and him. This is why it's such foolishness you hear in town. People say, ah, yeah, but there's slavery in the Bible. I say again, in the ancient world, it was a voluntary thing that I could do to free my family from debt. Me and Master Glenn would agree a five or a 10 or a 15 year plan that I would work with him, for him, whatever he wanted. And at the end of that, he would pay me or pay off my debt or give me the money that I can be free of this thing. But he would support my family so they don't have to perish. And plus on top of that, uh, there was every seven years the year of Jubilee. So people would be freed from their debt. If I owed Master Glenn, um, I don't know, whatever, 10,000 denarius, and uh, I, I didn't have the means to pay. I'm sorry, mate, I ain't got the money. What are you going to do? Yeah? Master Glenn. <laughs> Come the year of Jubilee, every person would be released from their debt. Amen? So what it is here, what we've got here, is Paul is saying that I don't own any man anything. I don't own any, I'm not indebted. I'm not, I'm not indebted. The reason I'm enslaving myself isn't because I owe people something, but I make myself a slave to the needs of the gospel, for the needs of the gospel. In verse 23, it says, a servant to the gospel of Christ. I'm a servant, not unto Master Glenn, not because of uh, the debt that I've racked up, but I make myself this, unto the service of my Lord and God. You know, many come to church to be served, Many come to church for this, for that. Oh, that God would give us servants. Those with a servant's heart. So this is the spiritual step. There needs to be an internal recognition of, of that contrite heart, of the attitude that we need to have towards the gospel in condescending ourselves into where God wants us to be, understanding that there is work that needs to be done, the spiritual stuff within us to change and mold us, to conform us in a particular way, in a particular way. So the practical steps of being what is needed. Paul says that I became what was needed for souls and situations, right? We read that. 
What's needed for souls in verse 22, 20, uh, 20 through to 22. So what he's saying here, again like we just said, he's not talking about compromise. To the drunk, I became a drunk. To, <laughs> to those that bung weed, I became as a weed man. To those that club, I became like, you know, on the dance floor. To those that are in fornication, right? He's not saying that. He says to the Jews, I spoke Hebrew. I became as a Jew. I reasoned with them as a Jew. Let me, uh, you know, uh, 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 expose, um, let, me, um, let me walk you through your text. Let me show you where Christ is in your text as I come in my full Jewish paraphernalia. Let me speak Hebrew or Aramaic with you, my brother. I became as a Jew. I stripped myself of who I am. He said, to the weak I became as one that is weak. That didn't mean that he came with all like, Paul was a man of power. He was a man of influence. He was trained by the, by the best uh, you know, Jewish rabbi. He had power, he had influence. A man that spoke multiple languages. He was a functional guy. He was a functional guy, but what he's saying is that I put away all these airs and graces to the weak, to the mild, to the, to the timid. I became as one that has no airs, that has no graces. I don't have status and qualification. I am a Roman, but to the weak, I put away such privileges. So what he's saying here is that we find common ground to reach them, to bring them from where they are to where God is. Whatever's needed for the sit circumstance. Philippians 4, 11 and 12 says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learnt in whatever situation I am in to, to be content. For I know how to be brought low or how to abound. In every, sorry, in every and so in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says he's flexible enough to deal with circumstances. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, you know what, I can eat, I can eat steak if I want. Or if I ain't got steak, I'll eat crackers. I can, I can, I can, I can live in a, in a four-bedroom bed, in a four-bedroom house, you know, detached in sandbanks. Or I can live, <laughs> amen, Keith said amen. <laughs> or I can live in a one-bedroom place, me, my four kids. That's what he's saying here. He's saying that I can work in the city of London with the high flyers or I can work in Bournemouth. This is what he's saying, is that I put the kingdom of God higher than my own preference. That I might reach the more, it is not my will. It is not my preference, but whatever is needed. So as we close, we know that we can do all things through Christ that strengthens us. It is Christ that makes this possible. It is Christ that enables us. 
by giving us the strength to be flexible. We are stiff-necked, proud people, man. We, we want things our way. I don't know anybody in this house that would say, hey, you know what, pastor? <laughs> you know, I, I'm completely you know, open to whatever. We want things our way. We want things our way when we want it done, when we want it done. I know I'm certainly like that, you know. Uh, um, but Christ will enable us to do that. Christ will enable us to be flexible. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things. I can do all things. All of these things I can do through Christ that enables me, through Christ that strengthens me, through Christ that empowers me. I can be flexible for the kingdom of God. So as we wrap up, Paul speaks about my reward is sharing in the gospel with you. It's not always about what's in it for me, church. As we go out witnessing, as we gave into the offering, as we, uh, it's not always about what's in it for me. Sometimes it's about what, what's in it for them. Some, sometimes it's about us turning our eyes on the lost so that we might win them to Christ. So as we finish, it says, imagine if, if you made yourself flexible, if you were to apply the lessons that the Spirit of God is trying to teach and, and learn from the example of Paul to the poor, to the meek, to the weak, I became weak, to the Jew, I became as the Jew, to those without the law, which is the Gentiles, I became as a Gentile. Imagine if you made yourself flexible, that you would be able to reach them the more. So that you now can share in the joy of the gospel. Oh, I'm telling you, it is, it is a joyous thing when you meet somebody that doesn't know Christ. Oh, and they are lost in their sin. And you'd speak to them about Christ and his redeeming blood. He's able to change. He's able to reform. He's able to forgive you. He's able to forgive you. My brother, my sister, would you accept that? And they say, yes. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to receive this grace? It is a great joy to share in that, that they are saved because of you. They are healed because of you, because of your sharing. They are delivered in their minds and in their life because of you. Now they are blessed and more so they have a life that is eternal because of you. You would truly be a great Christian. So I pray as we leave this house on this rainy Sunday afternoon, that we would walk out with the conviction that we can do all things through Christ that strengthens us. I said we can do all things, irrelevant of how stiff-necked we are, how principled and whatever discipline we have in our lives. We must adapt to people. Christ will enable you to adapt to personalities. Oh man, I know certain personalities, right? To adapt to certain problems. Pastor, you don't know. You know and, and so comes the problems and the issues 
Christ will strengthen and enable you to do that. But in your own lives as well, the predicaments, the change in your work, the change in your school and in, in, in university. Man, the change is in life. Christ will enable you, will strengthen you. Great Christians are flexible for the kingdom. Amen? Let us close. Father, we thank you. God, that you have not left us to our own devices, but have provided yourself as an example, condescending, coming down from glory, Lord. You took on flesh. You took on flesh, Lord, and you became like us to win us.